0: Did you know that you could earn ASHA CEUs for listening to these podcast episodes? I think this might be the most fun and most convenient way to earn CEUs ever. Whether you are sitting by your pool during quarantine or uh, trying to fill your commutes once we head back into a normal life here, uh, the opportunities are endless and it's so incredibly convenient. And the best part is if you use the code TALKING20, you get $20 off the pod course membership. That is a steal. So if you're interested in getting started, head to speechtherapypd.com slash teletherapy. Uh, Click the button at the top of the page to become a member and then just scroll down to the pod course membership section and click that white button. Can't wait to see you in all of the future courses.
1: Hello and welcome to Talking Teletherapy, a weekly webinar and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com where we dive into the ins and outs of teletherapy for speech pathologists. Each episode of Talking Teletherapy is worth 0.1 ASHA CEU when you complete the accompanying webinar on SpeechTherapyPD.com. So go ahead and visit SpeechTherapyPD.com teletherapy for more information about earning ASHA CEUs along with this podcast. My name is Leanne Porter. I'm an outpatient speech and language pathologist. I work with adults in a hospital, and I also host the Speech Uncensored podcast that covers all topics related uh, to medical speech and language pathology. And so now, without further ado, um, let's get on topic for tonight and hear from our guest. Hi, hello. Um, My name is Leanne Porter. I'm a speech and language pathologist. I'm in Kansas City. I'll be your host for today's Talking Teletherapy episode. I'm joined um, by Amy McGuire. She's up in Boston, and we're going to be talking about providing virtual adult therapy. So I'm going to hand it over to Amy now to go ahead and introduce herself and tell everyone a little bit
2: about her. Hi there, everybody. Uh, my name's Amy, I am a speech pathologist at Mass General Hospital in Boston. Um, I primarily work with adults and my primary treatment population is adults who have neurooncology um, diagnoses. So I work a lot with the Papa Center, which is the brain tumor center here at Mass General. Um, but I do see patients with other diagnoses, stroke, TBI, um, cerebellar. Uh, diagnoses and neuroinfectious and neuroinflammatory disease so a mix but lately with teletherapy or here at Mass General we use the term um, virtual visits uh, it's mostly neurooncology.
1: Okay all right cool so we're going to be talking about your experiences providing virtual visits in your setting with your typical um, patient population so kind of everything about our discussion today is kind of is housed in that experience. Um, and also disclosure for me, I have not been doing teletherapy yet. I still treat face-to-face, so like I will be learning a lot from Amy today as well. Um, okay, so what else did we wanna hit on
2: before we just jumped in? Do you wanna mention that everything that I'm sharing today while I'm here and Mass General logo is behind me in my virtual background one of, one of the delightful things about teletherapy via the Zoom platform. Um, I am expressing mostly my personal opinions only. So, you know, I just want to highlight that what I say here doesn't necessarily represent the position of my institution, Mm -hmm. my disclosure.
1: Yes, perfect. All right. So, um, well, let's jump in. So you mentioned that kind of the The main population that you're seeing with your virtual visits are your neurology, oncology patients. So let's start there. Um, What does a session, or, or how do you structure like, are you doing your, it's like,
2: where are you starting, Leanne? I'm starting everywhere. Yeah, where do we start with teletherapy, right? Or virtual visits, right? Because this is kind of new territory for all of us and it's come really rapidly and quickly given the current climate of the pandemic and you know i it's maybe taken everybody a little bit by surprise because it's sort of been forced i don't mm-hmm. I don't know if others feel the same way but
1: <laughs> yeah it's like you kind of didn't decide that was something you wanted to learn as a opportunity to provide services to people who maybe couldn't come see you it was kind of like this is what's happening now so time to jump on board whether you want to or not and, but I think when we were talking earlier, you mentioned that um, your facility was kind of moving in this direction. They were kind of already interested in virtual visits before the pandemic.
2: Yeah, and that's a really good point um, to start with because especially for the neuro-oncology population, uh, since we're kind of a, a major hospital center, a medical center in Boston, we do get a lot of patients who are coming from other states or a little bit further away for specific neuro oncology care, and we've noticed that you know it can be tough to bring people in for in person assessment and treatment. So wouldn't it be great if we could move towards virtual visits, anyway? You know, pandemic aside. Um, mm-hmm. So um, that's you know other other folks in my department were also noticing that it could be very beneficial for their patient populations, and so our department, thanks to the work of one of my colleagues, Cheryl Hirsch. She spent a lot of time trying to kind of pave the way for us to be moving towards some virtual care opportunities anyway. So when the pandemic arrived, we were actually a little bit ahead of the curve, um, which I feel really fortunate about. It was a lovely coincidence. Um, so some of our transition has been definitely smoothed over because of that preparatory work. So you know, other, other departments, other, other folks out there, may feel like it's a really big ramp up to being able to do that, so I feel fortunate.
1: Mm-hmm. All right, well, that's really nice. So, how did you prep your patients um, to transition to this model? You know, I think a lot of our patients are expecting to be seen in person, and so then we tell them, "Hey, we're gonna like meet with you via video visit." Mm-hmm. Uh, What kind of tools did you give them to prepare them, to let them know what to expect, what to have prepared, and how to be ready for those visits to maximize that time you guys had together?
2: It's a really good question because there's been a lot of different iterations just even in the last few months. Um, So I don't know about everybody else who might be dabbling or thinking about moving into virtual care, but Zoom has been our platform of choice. But in the beginning, we also had to kind of contend with how do we integrate or use FaceTime if that's an option, The opportunity to do that, Um, and the restrictions have been opened up a little bit because of the pandemic, and that probably varies state by state. But I'm sure everybody has been seeing things from um, Medicare, Medicaid services, right, saying it's okay. This is a crisis and a really exceptional circumstance. So now is actually a great opportunity, if we want to look at the silver linings, to just take whatever is av- available and out there and try to make that connection um, with the patients, whether it's by phone, FaceTime, whatever they have at their disposal. Um, so there was, a, there was a little bit of that happening and now we're pretty much dedicated to Zoom. Um, but we would provide actually a kind of a phone contact to talk to the person, assess whether they have the right technology, the right internet access. Um, a private space, we really emphasize you probably need to be somewhere where it, if you're going to be uncomfortable talking about health issues or c- you know, cognitive concerns, things like that, private health information, you don't want people to overhear you. So we, we sent out some written info about that and also definitely spoke to it a lot because we want people to be in a secure spot.
0: Um,
2: send out emails or patient gateway messages also giving instructions so as we were using zoom we would send out the meeting id and the password we started using passwords early on so that it would be a little bit more secure with all the uh zoom bombs that were going off i guess Mm -hmm. um video bombs i don't know what they were called um but that was a little bit of a brief issue for a time so we just needed to kind of add an extra layer of security um, and then really talking people through. So I had a handful of patients who I knew had some executive function challenges um, and it was good to um, almost use the task of ramping into virtual care space as a therapeutic activity. Um, and I had a lot of apprehension about it, but it actually, it, it lent itself really well. So we can talk more about that later. Okay, super.
1: Um, I'm thinking about providing therapy. So, did you need to like, modify or alter um, any materials so that they would be better utilized in the virtual platform? Yeah. What did that look like?
2: Yeah, so um, therapy and assessment materials, um, we kind of we initially, and I think everybody does this to a degree, you think, what do I do in person with a patient, and how can I just do the same thing? in the virtual space Um, and so I went through you know a fair number of of visits just like holding things up and trying to figure out if they could show up in the screen virtual backgrounds don't let that happen so you got to be prepared to take that down (laughs) Um, (laughs) but I think one thing that we've learned and again it's a short period of time that we're trying to you know adapt to to doing a lot of um, virtual visits we've learned that the more we can kind of take advantage of this modality and use things where we can share screens, um, you know, scanning materials in or taking pictures on your phone and then sharing that image um, from your your Zoom platform, those things help a whole lot. So surprisingly enough, right, we were in the habit of giving a lot of our bands. uh, And once we scan some of those assessment stimuli into um, a PDF, it was really easy to show that on a screen um, and still conduct it in a relatively a relatively serviceable way. Um, you know, it can be challenging because you can't have somebody drawing in the same exact way so that you can see it unfolding in front of you, but we mm-hmm. still were able to have them, you know, we would say, these are the materials you need ahead of time. So in addition to talking about tech requirements and just accessing the virtual visit, we would include instructions about, you know, quiet space, pen and pencil, some blank paper, um, you know, things that you might need to hold up to the screen just to prep people for the logistics of that. And so we would do that with figure copies, um, any drawings or written materials, right? They actually do pretty well, people holding up the, the things that they produce and then we would take screenshots and piece them into our notes. Um, so that worked well. And I think we had mentioned the coding task, right? So like a symbol digit where people usually would write in a corresponding uh, number for the symbol that appears. Mm-hmm. You can't do that in the same way at all, but we thought a lot about it and we figured that, you know what, we can write that we did it out of standardization, but we can still use the same timing and have people maybe follow along with their finger and say it verbally, what number they would put there. Um, and sometimes we're, we're working on seeing if we can share the screen in a, in a whiteboard fashion and have people actually like write it in with their finger. Um, I mm-hmm. haven't quite figured that out yet, but we're trying. So that's awesome. It's been dynamic. Yeah.
1: Just to clarify. So the R bands
2: is the, hold on. I
1: wrote it somewhere. I, guess <laughs> I lost it. I really I swear, I wrote it down somewhere. Okay. Let's see if I can remember. It's like a repeatable assessment for neuro, like physiological. Psychological
2: yeah, yeah. battery? The repeatable battery for the assessment of neuropsychological status. Thank um, you. And we really like that for the brain tumor population because it's a nice, quick, but a little bit more thorough but cognitive screen than, say, something like the MOCA. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are four forms. So that's a so, Yeah, thing. that's that repeatable part, that you can do the same
1: style, but the stimuli have changed.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other one that we often use is just doing trails A and B. And so obviously that's also tough because you have that written component and you want to give them that sheet to use when you're there. Um, but even doing verbal trails, uh, it's not ideal, but it does work. And you know, I, I feel fortunate that as speech therapists, like one of our biggest goals is to look at how people are going to be able to kind of functionally, um, in process, handle a cognitive task and um, maybe we're a, little, we're a little less tied to the, the task, the test modality and what it's um, looking at compared to say our neuropsychology colleagues, um, we, can, we can be a little more flexible um, and still comment on how we feel like that performance is gonna be impacting day-to-day life. Um, so taking something a bit out of its typical standardization um And just thinking about the process and then reflecting in the moment with someone to say like, hey, you know, the difference between your performance when you were doing Trails B, you know, switching between numbers and letters versus just in order, like counting, right? Did you feel that? Um, and here's why we think that means something. And people people still respond really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like you pointing
1: out that we can still give assessments and slightly modify the administration procedure and still get information on that person's cognition and processing. Like just because we do it a little bit different doesn't negate the fact that we can learn valuable information from them using the assessment. And like you said, just noting like this was administered XYZ way, but it could still tell us this, that, and the other thing about How they're processing information
2: Mm -hmm.
1: totally that's really good i like that um okay so oh amy did you need to get any like new or different equipment um to provide teletherapy
2: that's a good question and that's (laughs) that's tough um so i actually did buy a new laptop uh i had a pretty serviceable um MacBook, uh, but it was pretty old and it was starting to run slowly and to run some of this video software, it does, it does take a little bit of a toll it seemed on my operating system. So I decided I could afford to get a new machine and probably write that off in my taxes um, professionally. Um, and I actually think that the other piece that's really lent itself well to doing virtual care for me is that I'm in the office right now. So I'm still doing virtual care from my office, and I have my desktop also kind of off to the side here. Um, and so having dual screens is nice, and I know that not everybody can have that if they're in private practice, or if they don't you know, have uh, an office where they can do the virtual care with another machine beside them, but that's, that's actually been really beneficial. So you can be here with, the, with the, the virtual video call, but also maybe be documenting not on the same machine, uh, and it helps a whole lot.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That, that would be ideal. So it's not just having like two monitors, it's literally having two systems, two computers. So like you're working off of one and then, like you said, you've been able to, to document in your EMR at the same time or right. taking a second to, to update that.
2: Yeah. It took me a while to realize that too. So there was, there was a lot of note taking in the beginning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, but if, if people do have other technology available in real time, it, I think it does make a huge difference.
1: So what have been some, some things that you've been learning along the way about um, providing patient-centered care with this modality? Because it can, sometimes maybe it can seem across, come across as maybe it's, it's more convenient for the provider to do this. And of course our goal is always maintaining patient focus. So if that patient may not be very comfortable with technology um, and the concept of virtual care, how have you been able to kind of bridge that gap?
2: That's a really important question because I think it, it touches on that that equity piece too. <laughs> um, but, I know for me, uh, integrating caregivers and other family members has been really, really beneficial. Um, I think because of the pandemic, it's forced many people, not just clinicians, it's forced a lot of families uh, uh, and patients to just kind of figure it out because they've, they've, they've needed to come to uh, see other providers or not come, but they needed to see other providers and a lot of those other providers are making the same stipulation. Uh, and uh, I think that's helped us, in a sense, because a lot of at least the patients that I see, I feel fortunate um, having patients with neuro-oncology diagnoses, they're already, they already tend to be hooked into care with neuro-oncologists, neurosurgeons, um, radiation oncologists, and all of those individuals are also requiring some virtual visits as well. Um, if people don't have video opportunities, you know we're doing those visits and check-ins by phone, um, but luckily because you know we, we do live at least in a urban suburban area uh, for most people where where they know somebody with a smartphone or um, a computer and can at least um, you know Zoom is becoming so popular just in people's social lives um, mm-hmm. they know somebody who can help them out at least with that, um, so that's worked a little bit in our favor, um, but. You know the, the reality of not everybody having the right internet connection that that does kind of get in the way at times and you have to pinch hit in the moment and say you know what we got to hang up on this virtual call and just do some some check-ins by phone so part of doing virtual care well i think is also that we have to be prepared to go to plan b and then it might be extremely limited so thinking not just about how we adapt our assessments and treatment um, stimuli to video but also just how can we go all verbal right and if we needed to do an assessment by phone do we have that in our back pocket and that that was actually a piece that i thinking about that and preparing for that helped me uh, feel much more comfortable moving around this virtual care space so for example if you can't hold up a picture and do a naming task can you make a whole list of responsive naming stimuli where you can kind of do it over the phone And that's actually worked out well at times. You can get a lot of information. um, You know, scaffolding your yes or no questions so that you have simple versus complex. um, That can make a difference. Um, uh, Letting people kind of do a lot of, uh, like finish the story. Mm -hmm. So if you can't show them a picture, you can say, here's a scenario. Here's what happened, you know, like, Kelly went to the store, she needed to make a cake, she bought this, that or the other, like what else does she need to buy? Um, um, Just coming up with things like that and then letting people finish that so you can get a little snapshot of grammar or vocabulary. Um, All of those things um, are part of providing good virtual care, I think.
1: Yeah.
2: Sorry, I I might have got tangential. (laughs)
1: I wanted to touch on a couple other features um, that we've discussed previously about some of the really positive outcomes of moving to uh, at least a, a partial provision of virtual visits. Not saying that we all need to go all virtual for like everything always, but for like in your unique case, you know, you're in Boston and you're in Um, what some might call like a destination setting, like people might travel there from across the country to get like very specific, unique kind of care that can only be provided by this one provider at this one place, right? But then they have to go back home, but they need follow up and they need a continuity of care. And so previously, you know, if somebody needed speech pathology services, they would, we would refer back to their home location, right? But now when that person goes home after maybe seeing you before and after they've had some kind of procedure, are you able to keep up with them doing virtual visits and maintaining that continuity of care now?
2: Yeah, am, that's, that's a really good question. And it's been challenging to navigate that. Um, but virtual care has fit nicely into that continuum because you don't have the same lag of kind of needing people to physically come and find that time to travel. Um, to figure out their childcare situation, Um, you know, you can schedule a little bit more flexibly between both your schedule and their schedule. So on occasion, I've seen people in the evening and kind of just, I I feel lucky that my department, um, my director, Carmen Vega-Barakowicz, she's been very supportive about allowing us to think very expansively about that, um, Mm -hmm. which I think has helped the patients a lot, right? So, you know, if if they need, everybody's home with their whole family, right? And so sometimes daytime hours are not perfect. Um, So seeing people in the evening or, you know, if it has to be on a weekend, you know, flexing that time, virtual care, if you have that opportunity with wherever you work, um, it's a huge boon. Potentially for you, but certainly for patients. Um, So that's been really nice. And it decreases, virtual care, I think, has decreased the amount of time that people wait to get seen or to have their questions addressed, um, and I know that that's been something that patients absolutely reflect back on. They're like, "This is this is amazing! Like, uh, I saw you two days ago, and now I get to see you again. And I meant to ask you this, so it helps build a lot of rapport, as well. And I think um, it's a it's a good reflection of of um, what we can what we can offer in a kind of an idealized way.
1: Well, that's awesome! I love that, and it's really helpful. I feel. Um, okay. so my next question um, kind of dovetails into this one. Do you feel like there's been a change to the quality or the quantity of care that you can provide versus in-person visits to virtual visits?
2: I'm going to go out on a limb and actually give you my very optimistic perspective, which I think in some ways the quality has improved. there is less. I feel less mystified for those who I'm able to connect with virtually. I feel less mystified about certain aspects of maybe the home situation. You know, it's been really wonderful to have people just turn their camera and kind of show me where they're at. Or um, occasionally, some people will log in and you know they're sitting outside, and you get a you get a different window into how they're dealing with their functional everyday situation. Um, and occasionally, you know, the family members do. Show up, and maybe the patient didn't mean for that to happen, but you get some good information, and it becomes this collaborative experience. Um, a lot of times, I do ask people to bring a family member or have someone else present, uh, and it's also been wonderful for that because it's way more convenient for people to logistically figure a little bit of that out. It's just, you know, like chances are they're living with somebody, or, um, you know, somebody knows them at least well, like a neighbor or something like that. Um, so that's been really good. Um, and you can kind of get a closer sense of real time problem solving issues. Um, and I think it's easier to maybe get a little bit to the heart of what is a functional way we can really help you as the speech pathologist.
1: Um, so I wanted to circle around, um, we touched a little bit on talking about Uh, making some adaptations to how we administer assessments. And we talked about the R bands a little bit. Uh, What other assessments have you used um, in virtual visits and how have you needed to modify, adapt them? Are there some tests that just work better um, than others might on this platform? What's been your experience in that area?
2: one thing that's started to emerge is that that the time that we would usually spend on evaluations so at at mass general in person for evaluations we would usually block off two hours and sometimes a a little bit more depending
1: what that's amazing okay now i'm jealous
2: (laughs) i don't know i mean sometimes they were really really long um but we've decreased some of our evaluation expectations because i don't know about everybody else but sometimes like virtual calls feel very, um, a little bit intensive and they can be tiring, I think, in a kind of visual attention way where you're asking someone to listen to you and focus on you the whole darn time. Um, So we've sort of abbreviated and shortened some of our evaluation um, assessment paradigms. And so for like an aphasia evaluation, we looked towards inpatient to see, you know, what, what kinds of things were really quick and how much information do we get from them. So we've been using a little bit more. We've used the quick aphasia battery for um, a little bit more of an efficient aphasia evaluation. And then we'll kind of pick and choose pieces of the BDAE, which we also typically use. Um, But that gives us a a very easy way to um, share the screen, have these these PDFs of of the stimuli, um, and then supplement as we need to with additional naming stimuli. Um, So that's been. One piece that you know I think at least that's changed our flow in a big way, this shorter evaluation time. Um, it has like we would normally do uh, a clock draw, and that's been a little bit challenging to figure out because of that writing piece again, um, but mm-hmm. having people just hold it up. but uh, people who are joining on like iPads or tablets, um there is functionality in Zoom to use a whiteboard and you can draw a big circle and, have people you give them a remote control access and then they can kind of fill things in um, which is which is kind of cool. I'm getting better at doing that myself. there's a learning curve. Um, executive function has been challenging to assess but um, using uh, Google slides or PowerPoint sharing those and then having people take that remote control access and start sorting things that's a that's a great opportunity to get a little window into some of some of those. Maybe lower level, but but still maybe informative. Executive function skills. Could um,
1: you go a little bit more into detail about like maybe what it is they're sorting or how you like like the materials that you're
2: using in that? Like, um, I'm really curious now. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, so I try to combine a little bit of executive function and higher level language. So sometimes I will ask people to um, sort. Um, pictures thematically. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a whole bunch of different things and you decide um, which ones might go together and which ones don't, right? And they have to tap on the ones that um, they would group. And then I can, if they don't have the right hardware, right? So if you're using an iPad, it's hard to drag for some reason. I haven't figured that out yet, but they can tap on it. I can see it and then I can grab it and maybe put it aside. So i have them, I'll say like tap, tap on all the items that you think belong in a group together. And you can scale that down or up as much as you want, depending mm-hmm. on the number in the array. And then, you know, bring them to the side and then have them discuss why they sorted it that way. Um, you know, how they would use those items or, you know, then you could even have them pre-grouped with some sort of hierarchical order. And you could be like, now I want you to like, group them by size. And so you teach those two tasks and then you can say, all right, here we go. You, you know, this format now you sort them and then you group them. So tap them, I move them over and then they put them all in order.
1: All right. Now, sense. is that something you've had to create? You've had to build that Google slide. You've had to find your images and put them all in there. That, that wasn't something that was just available prior to this.
2: Uh, it's a little mix of both. And I think that that's one of the more challenging um, and time-consuming pieces. So one of my one of my colleagues here, um, her name's Anya Maloney. I owe her a lot of credit, and she's one of my um, kind of pediatric colleagues. Um, so I think one of the greatest things about virtual care, you start to realize like, I need some help thinking creatively and out of the box, and I feel lucky. I have I'm pretty Closely connected to a network of other really talented speech pathologists, um, so reaching across to my um, kind of colleagues working with school-age populations where the burden is so high to have engaging materials, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask them, and I was encouraged to by my boss, and it, it's been a really great learning opportunity for me. So I've taken some of those ideas from her, um, and you know, I would encourage everybody to kind of think outside of how do we normally get information about the therapy we provide when it's, when it's virtual? We gotta blow all the boundaries off. So. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, and I just wanna take this moment to remind our participants who have joined us live that we love questions. So if we're talking about something and it makes you think of something or we didn't kind of go into enough, enough detail on it, um, be sure to use the Q&A box in Zoom and ask us a question. I'll be monitoring that and peppering Amy with any of your questions. So I just want to remind you that that feature is there. You don't have to wait till the end of our discussion. Okay, so um, the next topic that I wanted to talk with you on is um, therapy techniques. So are there any that lend themselves really well? to virtual
2: visits? I think one of the uh, the therapies that was like perfectly suited towards virtual care, especially because of the pandemic, um, has been melodic intonation therapy, actually. <laughs> um, and kind of any motor speech and um, dysarthria therapy where you need to see someone else's mouth. Ooh, because yeah. right now you can't do that if you're in person. Most people are required to wear masks. It's pretty difficult to start demonstrating, you know, you know, back up and pull the mask down and show somebody, um, it's it's challenging. Um, and f- I had one particular patient um, who had apraxia of speech after surgery, um, and it was really frustrating to see him in the hospital, but not to be able to model in the way that I really wanted to. I was like, I'm not, I'm going to wear the mask. And so once we got into the virtual space, it was really great. His wife was, instrumental in providing the therapy and um we talked through the process um i had some videos ready on youtube of melodic intonation therapy in case she needed that she she actually didn't but you know we demonstrate i can demonstrate it on the screen and deliver the stimuli and she would she would kind of time it with me and we were lucky that we had a good internet connection Um, but but that was really fantastic and i he, he had a home care therapist come in as well, but it was hard because she still had to wear the mask. So mm-hmm. saying, you know what, this type of treatment is going to work a little bit better virtually right now. So.
1: Nice. Oh, I like hearing that. Yeah. It, <laughs> a proxy of speech is like the, yeah, you, you can't do it because you're wearing the mask in person and they need that, that visualization. That's like the cornerstone of our therapy for that population. <laughs> All right, um, what are some other
2: ones that work really well? Um, you know, things where um, there. so I, um, <laughs> so the sentence production uh, program for aphasia, um, when there are stimuli that are printed and that you're gonna be kind of working on and drilling, things like that, um, scanning them and just doing that virtually by sharing the screen, that is a really easy way to deliver that therapy. Uh, it works really well. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of um, any kind of language tasks where you're doing sort of a barrier task, um, those translate very, very easily. Um, so I think the, there's a lot of opportunity with aphasia therapy to also help uh, people utilize if they have strong written language skills. Um, mm-hmm. virtual care is really great for that because of the screen share option. Um, so, you know, you can listen to what they say, and if you're relatively fast typing, um, you can type up what they say, have them see it, and then you can start diagramming really, really easily in real time. Um, so that's been extremely useful for a lot of my higher level language folks. Um, uh, and I, they've responded really well to it and I've gotten good feedback from families and uh, caregivers who were like that that made so much more sense like it's good for them to see it they they benefited from from that because then it was something that they could reference so i save the slide and i try to send it to them so that they can you have like a ready-made handout from your own session um, when you can use something like a powerpoint slide or a google slide and you're kind of using it dynamically during the session itself
1: that's nice i love hearing about these things this is so fun it's You know, when I'm doing my in-person sessions, I like, I mean, my, my laptop is right there because the expectation outpatient is that you're documenting during the session because, you know, they're back to back, they're right after each other. And so if we're doing something a little more higher level, like maybe building um, goal attainment scaling or a goal, like do plan, goal, do plan review. Why can't I think of it? did say it right? Plan, review, Goal plan, do review. <laughs> um, you know, I have the sheet where I can like handwrite it out, but some of my patients now like want to have their own digital copy of it. Mm-hmm. And so like we can work on it in session and type it up. So then they don't have to try to decipher my handwriting and then they have a digital copy and they can edit and they can um, make their own. And so I found that really useful too and so if that's something I can do in person that also is something very easy to do
2: yeah theatrical. absolutely um, I have a couple of language therapy slides that I can show if that's useful to anyone But um, yeah. that's let's see oops
1: I don't know if I can share my screen oh do we have permission I'm actually just gonna see if our course moderator can make sure that we have share screen permission. Gotcha. Okay, try it again.
2: Yeah, let's see if that works.
0: All so, right.
2: Yeah. So for example, right, with You know, you can scan in some pictures and then just have the prompt right there and go through kind of naming tasks um, and then scaling up right um, through an array. Um, Sometimes I'll ask people to kind of differentiate and this is pretty straightforward, but then you can click and be writing in the responses. um, And then you can highlight in real time which ones you feel like are appropriate or not. Um, Then sometimes after we've reviewed, then you can kind of put that array of pictures up. And this is one example where I'll have them choose like which pictures match so a lot of times patients after surgery uh, have a little bit of a they take a little hit in visual attention so Mm -hmm. having them scan and then be thinking about verbs um, is is a good task. just post surgery so you know like they might click on that one and you move oh oh that's clever I like
1: that a lot ooh the dual tasking there is is on fire. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Cause I'm, the- I'm now I'm like, now I'm trying to do it. I'm like, okay. So I see the little girl bouncing on a ball and I'm like, okay, so bounce, that's my verb. So now I'm scanning and I'm thinking bounce and I'm reading through like what fits, what doesn't. And I find the boy with the soccer ball and I'm like, he's bouncing the ball too. So those two must fit.
2: Yep, and so then you know I can they can tap it and I can move it over, and then usually I'll ask them to generate a sentence if they're having a little bit of trouble with sentence or grammar, or we can kind of talk about differences, similarities. So we did that with this one for brush, and mm. for example, this was the sentence we might be looking for, but this is the sentence that I was given. The woman is getting straightened here by brushing more. Um, so then we talked a little bit about structure and you know this person's language was pretty fluent um and these are subtle issues that he that he was having but um it was just wordy um and i think in conversation with an unfamiliar listener he was getting a little lost and so were his communication partners so we were talking a lot about trying to monitor and and, um, tighten up his construction Uh Um, so we kind of would go through these types of Uh, slides, and then we'd go back, continue, and see if he could get back to this SVO format. Um, This is an example of just being kind of real time in the moment. So one of the sentences that we generated after this slide um, for Carrie, right, he said the couple are moving the couch. And we could be nitpicky, right? So we talked a lot about singular and plural. Um, Then we identified the subjects, verbs, and objects, and then we kind of thought about whether. Couch was the word that we wanted, um, and I had him generate these other options before he landed to land on chair, and then asked him to generate the correct sentence that we wanted, and he was able to do that. So um, it's really nice when you can kind of show the person, if it's not overwhelming, like how how you're tracking through the progress, um, you know, as they t- try to revise their their language. Um, so that's that's just one example.
1: That was really good. I liked that a lot. Now I'm like I love that. Like I want to use that in my all my sessions. Like I think that's such a good task. And now I'm like I'm like planning myself. I'm like getting distracted. I'm thinking like how can I make that work in my sessions?
2: <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because I would never do that in person in exactly that way. But Right. And uh, when you kind of are sitting in front of a screen anyway, um, finding finding little ways to kind of address uh, the errors that are happening in real time, um, I think there's a lot of potential there with virtual. With oh, virtual yeah. Theater. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that
1: I love so much about that illustration that you just showed us is that. It's so subtle, like it's not just find the match. They have to interpret the information. So they have to see the picture, interpret what's going on, hold that while they scan and sort. Right. I Like it can come across like such a simple task, but it's really, really beautiful. And you can, like, I feel like that's what you're talking about. You can um, uh, scaffold that up or down, depending on the level of the patient and what they need um to be successful. So that's really awesome. What are some therapy techniques that have been really challenging to use with teletherapy that maybe haven't gone so well?
2: Um a little um so I guess it's challenging for me to even answer <laughs> because I feel like I'm 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 learning actively <laughs> through this process of providing this type of care. So initially I did feel really challenged with executive function. Um, it was it was hard to think about how I was going to start to get at that, um, and so I, I felt like I was sort of foregoing it a little bit. Um, we would normally do do things that maybe involved a little bit more um, pen and paper type tasks or um, just materials that I couldn't easily um, translate into this virtual space. Um, But that's coming along because we we already talked about a couple of those kind of sorting opportunities and things like that and how to think about it even if it's only in one modality, um, is that okay? And does that offer uh, useful information? So even when I take a language task and make it a little bit more executive heavy at the superordinate category level, um, uh, it's working. So I think that's coming along, but that's probably one of the, the, biggest challenges for me. Um, But I I am thinking a lot more about uh, other opportunities through online platforms where, you know, when you can share the screen like this, you could utilize things that are probably out there and people are doing that and I I don't even know. Um, uh, So I'm continuing to look for a lot of resources um, for executive function. Um, I think of others that might be particularly Challenging. I mean, I know our team initially talked a lot about just adapting the R bands as we already discussed Um, There was initially we were like well, I guess we just don't give coding, right? Um, And so we had thrown that out Uh, And I think you know, that's okay, but as you spend more time doing this type of um, care and thinking okay Do I how how rigid? Am I being about this? Can I can I think about it a little bit more openly and just say okay and try it um it's it's really changed how I my comfort level with with virtual care so I don't know I actually don't know if I have anything I would say it's like so challenging that I couldn't do it Mm
1: -hmm.
2: I mean that's good that's good um all
1: right so now you've talked a little bit about how you had um a patient that you were doing a of speech with um what do you you could elaborate on that story or maybe share um, some other stories about um, like a case study, like an illustration of um, how your care has progressed through the course of a person's therapy to kind of like, you know, for me, like I'm not doing this. So like, what what does this look like? What can
2: I expect? How does this work? I think um, I'm gonna go back to that, the case that I mentioned Uh, The patient who I knew had some executive function challenges. Um, It's a patient who I resumed therapy with after a a period of time kind of not having seen her for a while. Um, She's a brain tumor diagnosis, and she'd had previous radiation therapy. And so there's the potential for things to have been uh, a little bit um, worse. I never liked to use that word but um, for things to have changed and she was experiencing more difficulty so um, knowing that she had that susceptibility beforehand and then coming back to say hey I need I need some booster sessions or I need to you know reacquaint myself with SLP um, knowing she had executive challenges, I was really worried that virtual care wasn't going to work out for her. Um, and the reality was that we we spent probably the first two to three sessions, really thinking about how is she going to interact with Zoom? how is she interacting with Zoom? Um, what scaffolds does she need in order to become successful at, at initiating our session? Um, so there was a lot of on the phone on the computer the first two times, but we uh, created uh, written instructions that I would kind of email with screenshots of the Zoom window and the different screens that come up. And it was a really good opportunity to talk about implicit and explicit, just using um, technology applications and just talking a little bit about that and making some analogies to like explicit, implicit, um, like a lot of technology expects that you have all of this implicit understanding. And when you don't, here is the amount of information that you need. So, you know, the screen, that initially pops up with Zoom, and then we would provide some explanation about what it was assuming you knew, right? And then some very explicit diagrams of like, what to click on, if that's not available, what to do. Um, So it was a step-by-step guide and she got it. It it was really satisfying. Every week we would would get a little further to the point where then she was able to sign on and she would be there and, and we were all very excited. She was really satisfied with that. Um, so that was really wonderful um, and a lot of that teaching has translated really well into the other kind of therapy tax, tasks that we're doing. So we're, we're spending a lot of time actually now with writing and word retrieval, um, but, but like higher level organization in writing um, as well. And so that executive function, we're still talking about implicit-explicit. Um, it's it's been a, it's been a really good experience because we can take a sample of what she's writing or listen to to her read it back and then um do some on the screen organization of the concepts and so mm-hmm. typing out some of her kind of um the statements that she's making the themes that we're seeing and then sort of sorting by what's relevant and what's not and then diagramming it out for her in a really structured kind of Visual organizer way on the screen, that's that's translated really really well, just like it, just like what we would use um, in a in-person therapy session. Um, so that that's that's been really satisfying. I don't know if I don't know if that captures a full arc. We're still we're still in treatment, but I do.
1: I think that does. I really liked hearing about how like part of her therapy was actually just learning how to log on to Zoom, how to like sustain that attention, follow those instructions, learn the difference between that, like what you're, what the technology is going to assume you already know, but maybe you don't, and how you came along to help her like, learn that process until you were able to then continue on. Like, I think that
2: was really interesting. Yeah, our first session, I think we only spent like a very, a minority of the session in the video session, but we were still able to, all that a productive therapy visit, um, and it's it's helped a lot with her other provider visits too, um, yeah, because they're yeah. all they're all virtual as well. So, um, you know that itself can be a goal. That's learning. Right.
1: How I love that. Like how functional is that? That you are helping provide the patient with the tools to continue their health care plan. Like they still need that, not just to meet with you, but all their other visits with their other doctors and whatnot so I used to have like this very very narrow view that like in order to to call it therapy it has to be something very structured and almost artificial like whereas the process of logging on to zoom is the therapy like all of that and so it's really helped me understand a much wider understanding of therapy that we can provide that's functional, that's meaningful, that's relevant to that patient that they're benefiting from and goals are being met.
2: Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the big, the biggest challenges of, of virtual care, right? You, it like forces you to meet the patient wherever they're at with, with this thing. Right. And it, it, you know, it, it, in and of itself, it's a, a really good functional task alone. Right. To, to think about uh, it offers a window into their own perceptions of technology about their own competency with technology. Um, you know, self-identity, all these things that, that people kind of hold and bring with them into therapy that sometimes can be challenging to draw out. You sort of, it's like right there in front of you as soon as you're trying to log into the, into the virtual visit. Um, and being able to bring that awareness and help people see like, this is, this is a triumph, right, if we can get this to work. Um, and maybe change some perceptions about who they thought they were. And I've actually had that, that happen a, a handful of times already where people say, I didn't, I didn't think this was gonna work, I didn't think I could do it. Um, uh, and and it's, it's satisfying even just to be able to log on.
1: <laughs> it is, it is.
2: Sometimes we just
1: need success in something um, after a, a life altering event happens to us. And if we can just have success in something, something as simple as logging onto the platform so that we can communicate with our providers, that's a, that, as you said, that's a boom, that's a win. Like, let's empower our patients to, <laughs> to do that and feel that way. That's really good. Um, all right, so we have about nine more minutes. So we're kind of in the home stretch. So I just want to remind our participants that our um, chat feature or Q&A box is open if you have any uh, questions that you'd like to ask us. Um, We love questions. Um, So Amy, I want to keep going and talk about, um, we've all had moments, I say we very generously since I haven't done virtual visits, um, when things aren't going well, when we're struggling either getting the person on board with virtual visits or having success within the virtual visits for whatever reason. Um, what what have you experienced in that realm when things aren't going
2: how we hope? You, um, you mean even just with the, the technology not going the way we want it to? or?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm leaving that really open to be like, it's not necessarily... Um, An issue with the therapy that we're providing and the patient like it could be could be the technology when technology isn't working the way We need it to like any any kind of obstacle that you might have experienced over the course of providing virtual visits these past few months
2: Um, Well, there's 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 that very obvious challenge of of some people just don't have um, the right connection at the right moment or um, there was some confusion about how to access the visit and a couple of times i have not been able to get the platform to work and it's it's hard to sometimes you surprise yourself and you're like if i just spend like five more minutes trying to drill down like what exactly this person needs to touch or download or click um maybe i can help them figure it out and sometimes you just have to say like actually i just i want to change tax and not worry about access and just talk about What's bothering the patient, or what their, you know, their chief complaint is. Um, you know, how how can I get a little bit more at the meat of content for what's uh, troubling that person? You know, in a, in the most human way. How can I be a speech pathologist right now and not worry about the tech? I think there's there's that potential, and when we can just say like, no, okay, this isn't working, but I still need to get some information. What information do I want to get? Is it can you name things or is it something wider? Um, keeping an expansive view like that is important. So mm-hmm. I had a I had a patient the other day who just couldn't access the virtual platform. It actually said he was. I was getting a message and I was like, you know, I can't tell if this is an error on your end or if it's, it's on my end. So you know what, just talk to me. Um, and he actually had a, a significant amount of dysarthria and um, his daughter was also there and in in kind of collaboratively trying to discuss you know what it was that he was hoping we would be able to do for him (laughs) we realized like a whole lot of other things he he wanted to have a better understanding of who was going to help him navigate his care he has like a little bit of an unspecified diagnosis and he just needed someone to kind of be a vessel for that and i actually think that That was actually one of the the most important things that we could have done together, is have a discussion about his concerns, his worries, um, and and, and what he was hoping for, this idea of a health system that um, he had, that maybe none of us, myself or any other providers, understood, Um, and I think that in extracting that, it's been helpful to, kind of share it with with other people involved in his care and help him feel heard. Mm -hmm. Um, So sometimes even when everything just totally goes haywire, it's still important to remember that we can connect as as humans, as clinicians, um, and to go down that road to provide patient-centered care the best way we can possibly, you know, do regardless of whether or not the technology works or doesn't work.
1: I think that's so good. And I love that. That's why I always like to ask kind of like a fail question. Like, tell me about a time it didn't go well, because there is almost always some kind of positive outcome. Like, we don't have to look too hard to see like, okay, our intention, our expectation wasn't met. But yet, you know, in your story, you've had this really good outcome that was really important to the patient and when their primary concern had been addressed and met, heard, and understood, now I feel like then he can really focus on, on, on dysarthria therapy, you know? Like, he can move past that because otherwise he would be distracted the whole time. Like, I still have this diagnosis. Who's advocating for me? Who do I need to talk to about this? Like, it's, it's weighing on him. It's distracting him and concerning him. So,
2: still a really positive outcome. Like, I love that yeah and you know it's the health literacy conversation, it's patient education. um you know that that information, which is such a huge part of being a speech pathologist, I think for many of us, we realize like that's in some ways the most important piece for people to take information, learn something, take take it with them, and then maybe come back and apply it or do something with it. Um, that doesn't that doesn't have to be sacrificed in any way whether you're on the video, whether you're on the phone, whether you're in person. Um, uh, and, if, and if we can do that all the time, doesn't matter what modality we're in. That's true. I'm so glad you mentioned
1: um, like providing health literacy and that that is definitely something that is our responsibility to share and have input on with the patient. Um, cause every time I come across that and it's, it's so important to me too. Like I want to empower that patient. I want to give them the knowledge and education to make the best decisions that they can regarding their health and their outcomes. But sometimes I get stuck thinking like, well, if I'm not collecting like hard numerical data, am I really doing therapy? <laughs> so it's like, like, think I buy that. <laughs> yeah. um, to close, I think my last question is. Amy, do you feel like you and your facility um, are have the intention to continue to provide virtual visits um, long after our social distancing needs are released and all of that, like we, we can kind of like go back to being in person and things like that. Um, do you feel like this is like here to stay
2: um, in your situation? I do. I I was a little apprehensive about starting down this path. Um, and then quickly, I, I, I realized, you know, this is actually a, a wonderful opportunity. Um, it certainly lends itself to the patient populations I work with. Um, and so from that perspective, I definitely don't want virtual care to go away. And I, I really don't think it's going to. I think um, the vast majority of patients who have been able to access it have responded so positively um, they, they've enjoyed it. They feel connected to their providers. Um, if not more than before, I think s- several of my patients feel like they have more access to, to us. Um, and I, I think that's good. You know, it feels, it feels a little bit more like a team approach and bringing other people into those virtual calls, it's, it's actually quite, quite easy. So that actually, you know, if I didn't answer before, um, that, that question you asked about if, is care better, is it struggling? If there's another um, big plus point for why virtual care could be so much better, uh, it's that it is actually very easy to bring other providers in, um, as long as they have the technology. Um, and so you can have people weigh in, word, um, you know, they don't have to be there for the entire session. Um, so there is this opportunity built into it for so much more collaboration, whether it's during actual visits or outside of them. Um, so I, I do think it's here to stay. And I think it's it's just another tool and an offering that we have. I am I have no worries that you know, it's going to supersede anything. We're going to be needed in all the contexts, virtual or in-person. Um, and so just keeping a really open and expansive perspective on how we do this. And that right now is a great moment to think outside the box. Think really flexibly and think, how does this help our care? Could it help it even more? What, what, what restrictions are we thinking are there? Let's just mm-hmm. take that out of the mix uh, and see what's possible because um, I do think this is here to stay. Awesome. That's so cool.
1: Um, all right. So I do have a question from um, one of our listeners, Amy. And um, so This person has been having trouble with their eyeglasses being glary in Zoom sessions, but we've noticed that your glasses are not doing that, so do you have some kind of special finish? Like, what kind of magic have you woven tonight?
2: I actually think I do have a special finish on these. I think I get, like, some anti-glare finish at my eye doctor, um, so I think that's a very specific thing. I have another pair of glasses here, let's see if they, yeah. I the, I definitely don't have um, I do have a, an anti glare on them, um, so I guess it does help. I'm um, definitely big okay. with the lighting, so that that might be a be a piece of it too. But yeah.
1: All right. Good. No, that's really helpful because <laughs> it can be very distracting. For sure. Hmm. All right. Well, that's our time. Amy, thank you so, so much for coming on and sharing your experiences, um, how your facility has adapted and is utilizing virtual visits and your own experiences within that. Um, I appreciate it so much. It was very insightful, very informative. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it very, very much. All right.
1: Cool. Cool. Well, have a great night, everyone. Thanks for joining us. You. Thank you for joining us on Talking Teletherapy. Remember to visit our website, speechtherapypd.com slash teletherapy for information about upcoming episodes and webinars. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. If you would like a discount on a pod course membership to speechtherapypd.com to earn the Ashes CEUs, enter in the coupon code, Talking20 for $20 off the pod course membership. Thanks for joining us and have a great week.